Blog Talk Radio. Live to the Red Zone Sports Report. My name is Chip Blake. I will be your host this week. It is Tuesday, November 21st. We are two days away from Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We've got a great show for you this evening. We've got a lot going on in college football. Got some really interesting storylines in NFL football. Last week we we didn't get a ch- we didn't get an opportunity to talk about a lot going on in the NFL. But one subject we did talk about was the quarterback situation with the Buffalo Bills. And on the second segment of this show, we're going to be joined by the Buffalo Bad Boy live from Buffalo, New York, Pete Tasca. We're also going to be joined a little later on by the Savage Burn, Mr. Steve Butler. We did not talk about the Atlanta Falcons last week either. We will talk about both the Bills and the Falcons this week, the Bills defeating Seattle uh, in Seattle, breaking their 12-game Monday night football winning streak. But we're going to talk about that. Before we do, we got a lot to talk about in college football. And as always, want to welcome live from Birmingham, Alabama, our college football guru, Mr. Kip Kiefer. Kip, welcome to the podcast. Chip, delighted to be here. Uh, it's rivalry week. The long-awaited matchup in the SEC is coming up Saturday. Tennessee and Vanderbilt. I can't wait. <laughs> exactly right. And we're going to talk about Tennessee and Vanderbilt, Kip. But before we do, oh. about an hour and a half ago, the College Football Playoff Committee released their fourth rankings, meaning this is the, the fourth week that they have had rankings it's week 12 of the football season not a whole lot of change kip so there weren't a whole lot of surprises the only change in the top 12 was clemson and miami swap spots in two and three last week clemson was number two miami was number three this week the u is number two and clemson is number three besides that swap kip no changes, and the reason is because it was Cupcake Weekend this weekend yes. in college football, and uh, not a whole lot of very intriguing games. Miami was one of the beneficiaries of that because uh, um, they played a conference game in the University of, of Virginia. The Bronco Mendenhall-led Virginia Cavaliers, and uh, you know, uh, got behind early. Um, we're behind twenty-eight to fourteen. Um, uh, and then, after they were down 28-14, to 14, Kip, uh, Miami reeled off 30 straight points to defeat the Virginia Cavaliers 44-28. to 28. i got to tell you, Kip, when you win a game like that, when you're down 28-14 to 14 and you come back and win uh, as decisively as they ended up winning, uh, a lot of people might hold that against Miami, because Virginia wasn't a great football team. They were, uh, I guess, 6-4 and four coming up, a good football team. But I was impressed with what the Miami Hurricanes did to come from behind. And it looks like the committee was as well, Kip, and they rewarded the Miami Hurricanes with the number two ranking. Thoughts on the college football playoff rankings, Kip, as they come out in week four? 
Well, you know, last week uh, before the rankings came out, I had Miami in the two spot and Clemson third. So I, I think maybe they just read some of my material from a week ago and said, oh, wait, we got to make I think this that's rank. right. <laughs> yeah, that's probably what it was. Um, but, no, that was a, that was a – I, I think you made a great point on the Miami game where, you know, Virginia is bowl eligible. They've had a pretty good year. Mendenhall's got things going in the right direction. And if any team had a license to be flat – uh, it was Miami coming off back-to-back home wins against top ten teams, Virginia Tech and then Notre Dame. Um, you, you knew it was going to be a game where they probably weren't going to be as as pumped up or inspired. You can't possibly expect that. And uh, they they flirted with danger. They were down fourteen nothing. They were down twenty-eight to fourteen. But in seven seconds, it was twenty-eight twenty-eight. Uh, Miami scored a touchdown on the first play from scrimmage for Virginia on the next possession, pick six for Miami. Suddenly it was 28-28, to 28 and reality set in for the Cavaliers. So uh, the Hurricanes, impressive still. Uh, the collision course with Clemson in a couple of weeks in the ACC championship game, probably the first really intriguing matchup in that uh, championship that I can remember. It seems like every year – it's it's a it's a really good team like Clemson playing somebody you know that doesn't really have a chance to beat them. Uh, Virginia Tech I know has gotten there a couple times with some less than stellar teams. I know Georgia Tech's gotten in it a couple of times, but uh, this 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 ACC championship game is going to be huge uh, to tell the story of what's going to be happening. And and uh, one of those teams is guaranteed to get in, and but not both. So I, I think the uh, winner. Uh, certainly is in the playoff, and the loser uh, has to leave town and settle for a regular bowl game. Well, it is going to be interesting, but I, I don't know that it's guaranteed that the winner's in, Kip. We're going to go over that in just a minute. Clemson plays South Carolina this weekend. and uh, They you do. Know, uh, while, it, uh, while I do think Clemson probably beats South Carolina, um, you know, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, well, well, I tell you what, I'm jumping ahead of myself, Kip. Uh, we're going to get yeah, and I, and I jump dream scenario. Too, yeah, yeah, we're gonna. I, I'm yeah, jumping I, ahead. I, I apologize. In, in just a second, I do want to get to kind of dream scenarios for each Power Five conference, and then disaster scenarios for each Power Five, Power <laughs> Five conference. But before I do that, I want to welcome in the Savage Burn, Mr. Steve Butler, a distinguished alumnus of the Big South champion Kennesaw State. I think it's Big South. Excuse me, I, I can't get it right. Anyway, Steve. Conference champions, Kennesaw State University, beat Monmouth this week, um, ten and one, eleven to one. Tell us a little bit about Kennesaw State football, Steve, before we start talking about. Before I ask you a question about the Miami Hurricanes. Sure, and, and by the way, you did get it right, and we can get it right. It is the Big South Conference, and we did win the championship Excellent. against Monmouth on Saturday, and it was a crushing performance. Actually, I think it was fifty-two twenty-one was the final, and Monmouth was 9-1 and one and a ranked team coming into our place and had one of the more prolific passing offenses in the country. But our secondary leads the country in interceptions, and we also lead the country in rushing. Um, so it's, it's Chandler Burks, our quarterback, won Offensive Player of the Year in the Big South. Our coach won the Coach of the Year in the Big South this year. Man, it's, it's, it's a stellar year for Kennesaw State, and we're going to take on Sanford Bulldogs next weekend at Fifth Third Bank Stadium. We're all really excited because – We've got a true playoff in FCS, and nobody can take it from us. You do have a true playoff, and you have an opportunity to exact a little bit of revenge. Sanford 
was the only sure. the only loss on Kennesaw State's schedule. And if I if my memory serves me right, Steve, that was the first game of the year. It was a night game. It was a Thursday night game, and it was delayed for an hour and a half because of a thunderstorm. Is that correct? Oh no, it was a tornado. You were close. It was. It was oh, almost tornado! A Absolutely, thunderstorm, tornado, yeah. either one. <laughs> so they do have an opportunity to exact some revenge. Steve, let me talk to you a little bit. We're gonna and we're gonna open up with you, and then I'm gonna go to Kip about uh, the Big Twelve. But Heather Dennis at ESPN uh, published an article earlier today, which was a, a very good article talking about you know possible. And this is what I love about this time of year. We have one more week left in the re- regular season, and we have conference championships. Yet so many scenarios still exist. It's hard to believe with only two weeks left in the college football season that this many scenarios can exist. But I'm going to read you what she has as a dream scenario for the ACC and then a disaster scenario for the ACC. And then, Steve, I want your thoughts on what you think is going to happen with the SEC. This is what Dennis said is the dream scenario for the ACC is number two Clemson and number three Miami both get in. Uh, it isn't far-fetched, she says, considering that the selection committee thinks they're two of the top four teams right now. The most plausible way for this to happen would be for undefeated to, undefeated Miami to lose a close game to Clemson in the ACC championship game. But it doesn't just stop there. Two additional scenarios would further legitimize this. Ohio State wins the Big Ten with two or three losses and or the Big 12 produces a two-loss champion in either TCU or Oklahoma. What we can assume now is the SEC champion is in. I don't know that we can assume that. We're going to talk about that later. The ACC champion is in. A one-loss Oklahoma team is in. An undefeated Wisconsin team is in, too. So in order to make room for a second ACC team, the Big 12 and the Big 10 need to stumble. A one-loss Miami would certainly be easier for the committee to justify over a two-loss Ohio State or two-loss Big 12 champion. According to 538 projections, if both Clemson and Miami win this week, the title game winner will be a virtual lock, while the loser will still have a one-in-four chance of getting in. The disaster scenario for the ACC is Clemson loses to South Carolina but wins the ACC. The committee has already forgiven Clemson's bad loss to Syracuse, which continues to look worse each week. Would it forgive a second loss to an unranked team? The Gamecocks are at least a respectable 8-3 and three in bowl bound, unlike 4-7 and seven Syracuse. But would an ACC title be enough to keep Clemson in the top four if it lost to South Carolina? If this happened, would the committee consider ignoring the head-to-head result and ranking Miami above Clemson? The committee uses conference championship games and head-to-head results as tiebreakers when it deems when it deems resumes and teams comparable. But in this scenario, it's easy to argue that Miami and Clemson would no longer be comparable because of the Tigers' second loss. Steve, all kinds of different scenarios, and that's just the Atlantic Coast Conference. What do you think is going to happen, Steve? Miami going to roll the table, and they going to be in? How do you see this playing out? Hey, there, there's a little bit of background. I, I couldn't hear the, the last part of your question, but I did hear most of, of your um, commentary on that. I mean, 
Miami and Clemson, they could definitely make both make the Final Four, Final four. given a loss for, for Miami. I don't think Clemson survives two losses, especially this time of year. And let's just not forget that seven of the last Iron Bowl winners have made it to the national championship game. So I'm pretty darn sure that one of those two teams is going to find their way into the Final Four. In fact, I think whoever wins the Iron Bowl rolls over Georgia. They're just not ready up front. Georgia's got some great speed linebackers, some talented secondary people, and some nice up front pieces on defense. But their offensive line's not there to win an SEC title against the defensive lines of Alabama or Auburn. And I think one of those teams, just given the history and what we know, is definitely going to make it. But as far as Miami and Clemson having that opportunity, I don't. I think Ohio State might beat Wisconsin uh, in the in the title game. And if that does happen, whoever Oklahoma plays is just going to be a very weak opponent in their championship game compared to Ohio State being a number five Wisconsin, compared to number two versus number three in the ACC, compared to a top seven team, um, you know, uh, two top seven teams in the SEC championship. The only thing that makes that more interesting that has changed from her article since then is that South Carolina is now ranked. So if Clemson does beat South Carolina, that goes towards that equation of top 25 wins, and that wasn't that way when she wrote this story. So that's an even more of an interesting factor. Um, I, you know, listen, the interesting part about the ACC championship game is that you've got this incredible defense in Clemson, but they have a really bad quarterback. He's got seven touchdowns and five interceptions on the year. I think Malik Rozier makes up for a lot of that with his play, but they're not as deep as Clemson on defense. I only think one of the ACC teams gets in. And I think it's possible that you could see two SEC teams. If Alabama loses to Auburn, they could still make it. Interesting, Steve. I, I, think, I think the South Carolina-Clemson game is going to be a good, good football game. Um, it, it's oh, a yeah. big statement game for Clemson for them to go up and, and, and really impress in that game because uh, South Carolina – they're playing with house money with the year they've had. They've been riddled with injuries. They've still been able to, to pull off a lot of close games, and they would love the opportunity to spoil the season for their neighbors on um, uh, just down uh, Interstate 85, the Clemson Tigers. Uh, Kip Kiefer, let me go through a dream and disaster scenario for the Big 12. Kind of get your comments on it. The dream scenario is that a one-loss Oklahoma wins the league, finishes in the top four. Um, and this is as good as it gets, as though you would finish the season with wins over West Virginia, a ranked TCU team, and a ranked TCU team in the big title game, a TCU team that they will have beaten twice because they did defeat them in the regular season. With the four spot already in hand, there wouldn't be any reason for the committee to exclude the Big 12. That's pretty self-explanatory. Here's a disaster scenario for the Big 12. Oklahoma, Oklahoma, plays, uh, Oklahoma loses to Iowa State again. Um, this time in the conference championship game. Looks like the conference championship game is going to be between de- determining who gets in over Oklahoma will be either Iowa State or TCU. The Sooners have already clinched a spot. They will play either TCU or Iowa State. ESPN FBI gives TCU a 99.8% chance to reach the league title game. But should a four-loss Iowa State team pull off a miracle and win it all, the Big 12 is finished. Even a TCU win over Oklahoma would likely doom the Big 12 uh, a crushing result considering that the conference resurrected its title game this season for the sole purpose 
of getting a team in the top four. So 538.com gives TCU a 30% chance to reach the playoff if it wins out um, behind both Auburn and Ohio State as potential two lost champs. I think 30% is pretty good, Kip, for that. But uh, Oklahoma, um, you know, team that looks pretty good right now. Uh, but Big 12, uh, certainly, I, I don't see anything, Kip, that would keep Oklahoma – from winning uh, both of its remaining games and getting in there. But I'm, am I missing something here, Kip? No, they're at home against West Virginia this week. You've got to figure they'll take care of that business. Uh, Texas beat West Virginia in Morgantown last week. I, I know Will Greer had to leave that game. I don't know what his status is for this one, but uh, uh, you, you don't think that's going to be much of a hurdle. You know, I watched a lot of the Oklahoma-TCU game just a couple of weeks ago, and Oklahoma handled them easily. And TCU's defense is the real deal. I mean, they held Texas Tech to three points last weekend. Texas Tech's one of those aerial circus teams. So uh, the rematch is not a gimme, but just watching those teams play a couple of weeks ago, Oklahoma just ran the ball right down TCU's throat. That wasn't so much a Baker-Mayfield showcase. That was the running game that really dominated the game. So – I don't give the Horned Frogs a, a much of a chance in that matchup. So Oklahoma really should kind of stroll right on in. Uh, in it, you know, worst-case scenario, if TCU beats them, uh, then they're going to have to have some fortuitous things happen because they're saddled with two losses. And if it comes down to a one-loss Miami team or a one-loss Alabama team or uh, some scenario along those lines, even a one-loss Wisconsin team, it's going to be tough to justify TCU over any of those those teams if that's who they're competing for that fourth spot against. Yeah, Kip, we're talking about the Big 12. We're talking about Oklahoma. Um, who would have ever thought that this past weekend's game in Lawrence between Oklahoma and Kansas would be newsworthy <laughs> at all? But very strange scenario. And I, I was down at, at Auburn at um, – uh, Louisiana Monroe Auburn game and, and and remember seeing some news come across the TV about some controversy in Lawrence about the players refused to shake Baker Mayfield's hand. I assume Baker Mayfield probably did something during warm-ups to justify that. Um, now that we all know the facts of the story, it doesn't look like that was the case. And um, lo and behold, it doesn't look like Baker Mayfield responded in the most appropriate way. But who would have thought that the Kansas Jayhawks football team, football team, (laughs) would make news on the football field this year at all, much less when Oklahoma was there. They got chippy. They hit him late. Um, Baker Mayfield didn't respond real well. He had an obscene gesture in the second half after his third touchdown pass. And he will be punished this weekend by not starting the football game against West Virginia and not being a team captain. But Kip, thoughts on a bizarre scenario in Lawrence this weekend? I have actually attended a Kansas game at Memorial Stadium on the venerable, beautiful campus in Lawrence. As you know, my elder son was a proud Kansas Jayhawk graduate. Um, Indeed. And he was assigned – to the football beat back in the Mark Mangino day, the glory days for KU uh, when they actually won the big 12 championship and played in the orange bowl and defeated Virginia tech. Um, Case will be the first to tell you that uh, he deserves total credit for that because that's the only era they were even competitive were his, his four years there. 
Uh, since then, what a what a just a complete train wreck the KU football program has been, and you never would have expected, uh, you know, them to uh, to stir up a further uh, make make the challenge even more formidable. They were a 38 point home underdog and uh, refused to acknowledge Baker Mayfield, which set off his uh, bizarre chain of behavior. Um, and, you know, maybe this is going to be a growing experience. Mayfield's had these kind of uh, uh, little indiscretions before, jumping up on the bench and yelling at the fans. And, uh, you know, he, 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 needs, he needs to look the part and, uh, and, and keep, keep, keep to his business. So, uh, but, yeah, you would never think, uh, you know, why, why stir up a, you know, a 38-point favorite? Uh, Kansas had no chance to win the game, but I don't think that really enhanced uh, any chance for them to even be competitive. And, of course, uh, you know, uh, I mentioned my son. He's one of those guys out in the desert. The line on the game was 38. Guess what the final score was? 41-3. to Those guys are pretty good. (laughs) They're pretty good. Steve, thoughts on the strange scenario in Lawrence, Kansas this weekend? Well, I – you know, I didn't start off right, obviously, with those kids um, deciding not to shake his hand. But, I mean, at some point, you've got to wonder, after all the mishaps that Baker's had, has anybody sat yeah. him down to coach him on these kind of things? Great I mean, question. I, I'm going to put this on the coaching staff. And, and I thought about this a little bit more. And, and we were texting before the show, and I was kind of poking fun at him. And I, I don't have much respect for him anyway after he screamed like a girl in that video when he got arrested for that DUI. But at the end of the day, this is on the coaching staff. They know players are going to try to get him riled up. And they clearly did not do their job and get through to him that, listen, you cannot respond to this stuff. It's going to happen all year long. There's no one even close to being as good as Oklahoma in their conference to Kip's point. I I mean, it's just kind of – it's a bad mark on OU, and, and people won't really remember the Kansas part because they don't have anybody famous, and they're horrible. So, anyways, it, it, no, it killed right. Baker Mayfield's Heisman he, hopes. It killed his Heisman he, he, ESP, ESPN's Jake Trotter had the understatement of the year in a sports article, certainly the understatement of the year in, in the football season article. About this game, he says, and I quote, Emotions were unexpectedly high in Lawrence all day Saturday. That's not a that's not a sentence that I had expected to read about the Oklahoma Kansas game, at least the Oklahoma Kansas football game, the understatement of the year. Steve, while we're uh, talking a little college football while we wait for the Buffalo a bad boy to join us, let's talk a little bit of Big 10. And before we go to Kip to talk a little bit about the SEC, um Big 10 scenario, dream scenario is pretty simple. Um Wisconsin wins out, they win the league, they're undefeated, they're in. That's really, really simple. A disaster scenario for the Big Ten would be a three-loss Ohio State wins the Big Ten. Um, Ohio State's already clinched the East, um, but they do have to play Michigan this weekend. I think they're going to beat Michigan. If they don't beat Michigan, they have three losses. Then if they go in and beat Wisconsin, it's bad. Then you clearly have – uh, in all likelihood, no Big Ten teams going to come in. But the question would be, you know, let's assume, let's say that Ohio State beats Michigan, and then they beat Wisconsin. They go to 11-2. and two. Um, They're 
are probably some scenarios that have this Ohio State team sneaking in the top four. It always seems to happen this time of year. I've never seen a coach or a program get so lucky, and I say lucky. I mean, Urban Meyer coach teams are good. But, you know, Steve, is there any scenario that you see? 538.com puts the odds at a two-loss Ohio State team getting in at 42%. That's pretty good odds, Steve. What do you think is going to happen in the Big Ten? Who do you think makes it in, if anybody makes it in? Uh, Ohio State's got a massive chance just because of politics. You can throw all that other stuff out the window. People want Ohio State fans, which have a massive fan base, to be watching those final totally. four games. The NCAA football wants it. Other schools want it, quite frankly, because they know it brings attention to their conference. And I think there's a little bit of money in the Big Ten and those schools like Penn State and Northwestern. Uh, so there's it's politics. And that's why even before Urban Meyer, Ohio State always got in, no matter who their coach was. So a two-loss Ohio State team in the last three years guaranteed to be in the top four. And I don't care if they play in high school teams. It's disgusting. It's why this system is completely bogus, quite frankly. And, and I don't see how you have Notre Dame, Penn State, and Ohio State as three of the top ten teams in the country. They haven't played anybody, and when they have, they've gotten crushed. So I, the whole system is, is kind of whacked. Um, I, I'm really enjoying FCS playoff football, I can tell you that. There you go, baby. There you go. But we're gonna we're gonna talk about the Big Ten real quick because here's what Heather Dennis said about the dream scenario for the Pac-12. The dream scenario is that they get a team in the college football playoff next year. The disaster scenario is that they miss the college football playoff next year too. So um, no scenario that has the Pac-12 getting in. Kip, let's talk about the SEC. Um, Because a lot can still play out. A lot can still play out. While we're talking about the SEC, let's talk about a little game that's going to happen this weekend down on the plains at Auburn. Nick Saban and the Alabama Crimson Tide are coming in at an undefeated 11-0 into Jordan-Hare Stadium for a 3-30 game. Kirk Herbstreet, Lee Corso, and the boys are rolling into town. The circus is coming in. I think it's the first time in three or four years that game day has been back to campus. Uh, just a few weeks ago, Auburn uh, played their best game of the year against the number one Georgia team at home. Alabama's coming in, as Alabama normally does. Number one in the country, undefeated. But for the first time that I can remember, Kip, They've been caught with the injury bug. These Nick Saban teams and all these other teams seem to have injuries throughout the year. And Nick Saban's Alabama teams have avoided major injuries. This year, especially late in the year, they've kind of been caught with the injury bug. They're down three starting linebackers. They're down a starting safety. But they're still Alabama. They're two, three deep when most teams are one, one and a half deep. Um, Alabama, I think they're a three and a half, four point favorite. Uh, look, I'd love if this was a close game. I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen in this game. Um, I, I really thought that Georgia would beat us. Um, I thought we'd look better against La Monroe than we did. Um, I I thought we could hold the lead against LSU, and we didn't. I thought we could get a first down in the second half against Clemson, and we didn't. I I watched this Auburn team very closely, Kip, and and I really don't know what to expect on Saturday. So what do you expect on Saturday down on the Plains? Well, 
you know, if if Auburn uh, if Auburn hits on all cylinders, they can absolutely play with this Alabama team. Uh, I think Mississippi State proved that two weeks ago that Alabama is a beatable team. Um, you know, maybe if a few things had gone a little bit different in that game, then we'd have a completely different scenario. But to Alabama's credit, they did the Alabama-like thing, and and you get this is what you have to concede. Jalen Hurts is a guy that uh, in two years has just come through in the absolute uh, moments that he had to just about every time. He's, he's a winner. He makes a play when the game's on the line. Last year, uh, we can't lose sight of Alabama's only loss in the, uh, in the last two years at Clemson. Jalen Hurts rallied his team with a late drive and scored from 34 yards away to put Alabama in front with less than two minutes to go. And we all know what happened. Deshaun Watson engineered that brilliant drive down the field and scored literally on the last play of the game. So it was not on Jalen Hurts, although he didn't have his greatest game. When it really counted, he came through. He's probably the biggest X factor in the game, taking nothing away from Jared Stidham. Uh, but Jalen Hurts is just one of those guys. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I feel like uh, that's maybe Alabama's biggest advantage going in. They've been on that stage. Uh, I, I made the statement about uh, four or five weeks ago that, that Alabama, Georgia, and Auburn were clearly the three class teams of the league, far superior to everybody else, and really kind of speculated that we would come down to this de facto playoff. Uh, Auburn fired the first shot and clobbered Georgia. Um, it was a game they had to win. It was not a game that Georgia had to win. They were already in the championship game. It's a really unique situation. So now Alabama and Auburn square off. Uh, Alabama will go there expecting to win. If Auburn has that expectation, we're in for a great game. I'm hoping that uh, that the Tigers don't come out tentative and, and Gus Malzahn uh, opens up the playbook just like they did against Georgia. I thought their plan was brilliant. If they play very conservatively and play not to lose, they will not win this game. They have to let it all hang out and play with that same sellout, all-out effort that they did against Georgia, and then I think we can have a toss-up. It's, I think it's going to be a fantastic game. It's a great matchup, and uh, it sets up the uh, championship scenario either way, whether it's a rematch or it's Alabama-Georgia to make it a true round robin. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch, and uh, I'm, I'm excited for the conference. I'm excited for the state that I'm occupying right now. Uh, folks are so fired up for this game, but it's it's a nervous kind of an energy here. Neither fan base is really talking a lot of trash because uh, <laughs> there, there's a lot of butterflies in stomachs here, even four days out. So it's gonna be it's gonna be just a classic Iron Bowl, and I can't wait. Kip, let me ask you this question, and then I'm gonna ask Steve the same question. Here's a scenario. There's two crazy scenarios that could happen, and I don't know the answer to it. It'll be interesting to see how the committee does. Let's assume, for the purposes of scenarios, because that's what we do here, let's say Auburn beats Alabama this weekend in Jordan-Hare. Alabama's regular season then comes to a conclusion. They will not play in the SEC title game Auburn well. So Alabama will finish the year at 11-1, and and 11-1. And then Auburn and Georgia play for the SEC title game. Um Let's assume, well, actually, it doesn't matter for the sake of assumptions whether Auburn wins or Georgia wins. If Georgia wins, they're 11-1. and one. If Auburn wins, they are 11 and uh, they'll be 11-2. and two. 
excuse yeah, me. Georgia will be twelve. Georgia has one more game this weekend, mm-hmm. so they'll, they'll be twelve and two. I obviously got the Georgia Georgia if Tech they, game. If they beat Georgia so Tech, so what? What happens under that scenario, assuming, let's assume that Miami wins out, let's say they beat Pittsburgh and they beat mm-hmm. Clemson, or Clemson mm-hmm. wins out, they're two and three, so the reality is, um, you know, whoever wins, if, if either Miami or Clemson went out, if they're two and three right now, they're going to be in. What if Oklahoma wins out and Wisconsin wins out? Does that mean Alabama drops to five and an eleven and one? Does it make the college football playoff ranking? What happens in a scenario like that, Kip? Yeah, that's that. The one you just posed is probably the only disaster. Uh, if Alabama loses Saturday um, at twelve and one, you know, if if anything falls their way, I think they're going to be the number four team. Uh, there, no, no other team whether it be Miami or Wisconsin or, um, you know, any other one-loss team, Alabama's going to get the nod. Let's, well, let's just uh, – Steve talked about the politics with Ohio State. Alabama is viewed as the premier program. Nick Saban's the premier coach. Uh, there will be tremendous pressure on the committee to include Alabama because that would be a forgivable loss. You know, I don't imagine either side is going to blow the other side out in this game. If Auburn beats Alabama, Auburn will have defeated the two number one teams back-to-back. And uh, you talk about a, 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 not a bad loss. If Alabama loses a road game at Auburn, uh, the number six team in the country who, who completes that unlikely double, um, they're not going to get penalized severely, in my opinion. Now, if it does come yeah. down to Wisconsin and Miami being undefeated and Oklahoma uh, having the one loss, I guess that's an intriguing debate. Oklahoma, though, would be the conference champion for the Big 12, so I think that would slide them ahead of Alabama. Uh, that's the only one-loss team that I can see getting that designation only because they will have won their conference championship. So uh, I think Alabama still, with a loss Saturday, is likely to be in. It could give the SEC two of the four teams, which, be, which would be highly controversial. But if, if, if things fall the right way, um, then, then maybe we can see that. But I think Ohio State will beat Wisconsin, and then that's going to open the, the great debate because uh, I can promise you, uh, no matter how politically connected they are, a two-loss a two Ohio State team is not getting in over a one-loss Alabama team. No, I agree. And, Steve, let me give you a different scenario. The scenario I'm going to give you is Alabama beats Auburn this weekend. Then they go to the SEC title game and they lose to Georgia. So now all of a sudden you have a one-loss Alabama team. You have a one-loss Georgia team, assuming Georgia can beat Georgia Tech this weekend. So, you know, we're in a similar situation there. Is Alabama in the same situation there? Because as Kip said, the um, the wild card in here is a Wisconsin team who, has, who plays a Minnesota team and then Ohio State. I don't think anybody – well, not anybody. That's probably unfair. There are probably a lot of people that think. But, you know, if Wisconsin goes 13-0, I think they're going to be in the playoff. I think they should be. Definitely. But does that mean Alabama, by losing a close game to the Georgia Bulldogs in the SEC title game under that scenario, are they out if Oklahoma wins out? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, anybody that loses their conference championship and then has other two teams surge like that, it's hard to put them in there. Um, I, the first thing's first, though. I mean, I can't tell you how unlikely I think it is that Georgia beats either 
Auburn, Alabama. Listen, Jalen Hurts is probably the most underestimated football player in the country. I mean, he does not not get enough credit. And I'm an Auburn fan, so at the end of the day, I'm the the Carry on Johnson, I would agree with that. I agree with that. (laughs) Well, I'm going to put them both together. By the way, the whole country is going to get a nice peak coming up this weekend, so I think that's another kind of subplot to this game. But the guy's got 14 touchdowns, one interception, and at least five of those touchdowns have come in clutch times where Alabama absolutely had to have one. I I don't really see – he's kind of the Tyrod Taylor, I think, of the SEC. The guy just doesn't get much respect. And I don't think I don't think Jake Fromm can match up with him, and I don't think their offensive line can handle Alabama or Auburn's defensive line. In fact, I know. It's almost an impossibility. Uh, Georgia, to me, was an, a massive fraud. Massive. Their schedule was weak. Ooh. I didn't think Notre Dame, I didn't I think Notre Dame was good either. To, to be honest with you, and, and I talked about that before the game, before the Miami game. Um, so, anyways, I, I think Notre Dame's going to have a hard time coming up this weekend. I agree. I couldn't agree more. But, Kip, <clears throat> if my listening skills are good, and my wife would debate that, I think I heard <laughs> Steve say Tyrod Taylor. Did you hear that? Did you hear what Steve said? <laughs> I did. Was Tyrod in the news recently? I think the Savage Burn mentioned Tyrod Taylor. Because he mentioned Tyrod Taylor, we are going to have to take a break. We're going to have to take a break because before we talk about Tyrod Taylor, we need to all take a deep breath. And when we come back on the other end of the break, we are going to welcome live from Buffalo, New York, The Buffalo bad boy, Pete Tasker, will be back on the Red Zone Sports Report. And because Steve mentioned it, we are going to talk about the Buffalo Bills (laughs) quarterback situation. Nathan Peterman, Tyrod Taylor. 60 seconds, folks. We'll be right back when we do. We're going to talk a little bit of NFL. Stick with us. discussion in the books in the rearview mirror. Um, Last week we did not have an opportunity to talk a lot of NFL football and Steve you obviously had brought up the Atlanta Falcons at the conclusion of last week's show and I promised we'd have an opportunity to talk about the Atlanta Falcons this week and we will but before we talk about the Atlanta Falcons and the Monday night football game last night in Seattle We did have a discussion on the Red Zone Sports Report last week about a very intriguing situation in Buffalo. Um, 
with a quarterback change. Uh, it wasn't but four weeks ago when the Buffalo Bills were 5-2 and two and were well on their way to making <laughs> the playoffs for the first time in a long, long, long time. But they were jinxed. The Buffalo Bills were jinxed. And they weren't jinxed because they're the Buffalo Bills. They were jinxed because yours truly, the host of the Red Zone Sports Report, predicted on this show that they would be an 11-win team. And because I predicted they would be an 11-win team, they are now 5-5. Five and five, But, folks, they're breaking records. They are breaking records. And so uh, they, they went this weekend with a, um, a rookie quarterback, a fifth-round draft pick out of Pittsburgh, a kid by the name of Nathan Peterman, to start over Tyrod Taylor. And as you can expect, and uh, as we talked about last week, Nathan Peterman, we knew, would break all kinds of records. We just didn't know he would break those records in the first half of his first game. Let me walk you through some of the record records that he, he broke on Sunday. Um, no quarterback had thrown five interceptions in one half since the NFL-AFL merger. So Nathan Peterman did something that no quarterback has done since the merger. Number two, no team whatsoever had thrown five interceptions in the first half since the Steelers did it in 1973. Folks, I was born in 1973. That was 44 years ago. Peterman's five picks came on 14 pass attempts, only one shy of the record set. Here's what he does have going for him. The previous record of five picks on 13 pass attempts was also set in 1973 by a New Orleans Saints quarterback by the name of Archie Manning. So a little bit of a silver lining there for Nathan Peterman. No quarterback had thrown five interceptions in his first career start since. Keith Null in 2009 for the Rams. And I swear to God, I have zero memory of who in the world Keith Null is. I had no idea who he was. And finally, the um, the last record that he broke um, actually tied this record. He is tied with Geno Smith because three of those picks were in the fourth quarter and first quarter, and no quarterback has thrown three picks in the first quarter since Geno Smith did it in 2014. Asked about the decision after the game, Buffalo Bills head coach Sean McDermott said, I don't regret my decision. I regret the result. (laughs) Pete Casca, welcome to the Red Zone Sports Report. Please help us make sense of the Buffalo Bills quarterback situation. Well, I can't help you there, Chip. I can tell you that much. Uh, I cannot help you make sense of this thing. Uh, you can't make this stuff up, folks. Um, uh, you know, I'm usually not at a loss for words, and I'm sure I'll find a few here. But, yes, indeed, it was uh, – I'm still shell-shocked. It's only Tuesday. I'm still licking my wounds. Um, I guess we can start in the uh, in New Jersey uh, three weeks ago on Thursday night against the New York Jets. I think we deemed that uh, nauseating and embarrassing. Uh, when we shift over <laughs> to Berkshire uh, Park, New York, against the New Orleans Saints last week, and I think we deemed it humiliating. And uh, we can shift over to L.A. this week, and uh, it's an unmitigated disaster here in Buffalo, folks. Um, 
Well, where do we even begin? Uh, he doesn't regret the decision. <laughs> he doesn't regret the decision. Well, let, let, let's first be clear here, and Steve can verify some of this. He is privy to some of the the Buffalo misery. He is he has a a main line, uh, you know, valve into this thing. He is privy to a text chain of ten to twelve diehard Bills fans that rant and rave and. I think Steve said something along the lines of a few weeks back when we were sitting gloriously at 5-2. and two. He goes, you miserable bunch. You can't even be happy when you're, you're basically perched atop the NFL for the most part of the AFC at the time. And, and I think we, we made that clear a, a week or so into the Red Zone Sports Reporter right around that, that time frame. At least I made it clear when – when you were pumping me full of optimism that I should be excited, that, that we should we should celebrate this five and two record. And I and I think I, I, I clearly stated as as much as I want to join that party, we need to pump the brakes, folks. You just don't understand how we roll here in Buffalo. And now here we are at five and five. We've again got an unmitigated disaster brewing here in Buffalo. One of the worst performances we've ever seen in the history of the NFL. We still don't know if Nathan Peterman will be named the starter this week, or if it'll be Tyrod Taylor. <laughs> you just can't make it up, folks. I'm sorry to say I don't have much more to say, but I will cite one small hopeful stat. I don't know the exact date, but Nathan Peterman, as you SEC folks know, began his career in Tennessee with the Volunteers, and as a redshirt freshman, he was thrust into the swap. 90,000 rabbit fans, you can only imagine it was 100% humidity and about 95 degrees, and he absolutely imploded in that game uh, to the tune of about five completions and two interceptions before he broke a finger, and he was mercifully pulled from the ball game. Now, he went on to have a pretty decent college career, got drafted, made a few bucks, made the NFL team known as the Buffalo Bears and got his first start this past week. Maybe he can recover because he's been there before. However, we are talking about Buffalo and the Buffalo Bills, and I'll just leave it at that. Pete, it, it's oh, hard Lord. for me to know where to go from there. <laughs> Steve, I'll let you, I'll let you pick it up. Steve, I, I'm at a loss for words like Pete is, but no. I mean, Steve, I'll, I'll let you, uh, I'll let you take it from there. The savage burn. <laughs> First of all, Pete, I love you, man. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I just love you in this entire text chain that I'm on with 12 people. I. Pete will tell you, I went round and round with these guys really all season about Tyrod Taylor. I mean, round and round and round. It's obnoxious. And the one stat I kept drawing them to every time was the Bills lead the NFL in turnover difference, and it's because of their quarterback. And he's not great, but he doesn't lose ball games for you, and occasionally he'll win one for you. And he's not. He's an, he's an average quarterback, Okay. But you cannot take a winning football team and take a quarterback who's ranked in the top 12, I think, his QBR, and bench him for a rookie with a two-game road streak 
it is kind of, and I know I kind of went along with this last week, and I was just really not looking to be argumentative, to be honest with you. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's unbelievable that he made this decision and is sticking by it. I, I, I mean, it's, it's jaw-dropping. And I did have some hope for Buffalo because at the time they were top three in defense. They were, you know, at least managing an offense. But if you look, they're at the bottom of the league in rushing now, and they're at the bottom of the league in rushing defense. And it has nothing to do with their quarterback if you can't run the ball and can't stop the run. Although, listen, I I can't believe they brought the kid back in. And and all I can say in my head, if you all remember the the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where Cameron calls the principal to – Talk about Sloan Peterson, dad. And he just starts going, Peterson. Oh, I can hear it. Peter, Peterson in my head every time he threw an interception. And, and I kept texting these guys, and they wouldn't let go. In fact, they were more determined than ever that Peterman should be the quarterback. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, if you were to pull Buffalo, and by the way, there, there was a, a political strategy friend of ours up in New York to pull of this. It's unbelievable how many people are behind Peterman. So there's a reason the coach went with the change. Um, and, and if you look at how it correlates to some other polling, it was actually very interesting. Well, Steve, let me ask you this. What happened to that text chain uh, around 7 o'clock Eastern time on Sunday night? <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, I, actually, the guy I've been arguing about this the most left the text chain at about 8.59. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I, I ceremoniously included him this morning said, good morning, sunshine. So um, <laughs> it, it, it's getting deep and personal up in Buffalo, and I'm trying to keep them focused on the fact that they, they're – I think they can beat the Jets this weekend, but not if Peterman starts. Uh, it's, yeah, and, and I think Sean McGurk's yeah. probably, probably lost – he's probably lost the locker room because it, 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 I think he completed – six passes and five interceptions. There's no way. No, that that's right. I mean, he – no, no, he, he – I mean, he he completed 11 passes. The problem is five of them were to the other team. He was 11 for well, 14, only nice. three balls hit the ground. But, you know, he had and trouble he getting it to the right the guy. But I tell you, uh, this is the third year, third year I think we've done the Red Zone Sports Report. And I've heard my friend – the Buffalo bad boy Pete Taska talk about what it's like to be a Buffalo Bills fan. And, you know, I just chalked it up to, you know, he's a passionate fan, doesn't work. But I get it now, Pete. I'm never going to argue with you again. I'm you never going to argue now, with you again. When, <laughs> when you talk about the jinx, I now know what you're talking about. Five interceptions in one half. And it's not like they played – the Jets in the Meadowlands, or they played Pittsburgh, you know, uh, at Heinz Field, or they played the Redskins down at FedEx Field. They had to go all the way across the country and play the Los Angeles Chargers. Can you imagine that plane ride home and how <laughs> quiet it must have been? <laughs> I mean, Kip, your thoughts on the well, situation, is- the quarterback situation uh- in Buffalo? You know, it's the classic example. They had a couple of really, really lousy offensive performances, and everybody in town. This is the, this is, and and this is not unique to Buffalo. Everybody loves the backup quarterback, 
And, you know, yeah. I, I tried to say last week that, you know, maybe McDermott uh, had seen something in this kid or he is just lighting it up in, in the reps that he was getting in practice. Uh, if, if he bowed to basically public pressure, um, you know, in, in, in making that decision, that's, that's, that's pretty sad. Um, and, and, and if he goes with Peterman again this week, that's even beyond belief. That you know, the the the, the, the absolute uh, collapsing empire for poor Pete and the Buffalo Bills. They now have to go to Arrowhead and play a Chiefs team that is royally pissed off because they absolutely <laughs> laid a, a a brontosaurus egg last weekend against yeah. the lowly one-win New York Giants. The Chiefs just didn't show up in the Big Apple and embarrassed themselves. So I think they're catching the Chiefs, you know, maybe at a good time from a performance standpoint, but I think they're gonna they're gonna face just an angry mob at Arrowhead Stadium. They better have Tyrod Taylor under center, a guy who's got a little bit of experience if they have any chance to win. If they put Peterman back in that spot, he might throw six interceptions in the first. <laughs> um, and, and, and I'm glad I'm glad Pete I'm glad Pete reminded us because I just it just hit me like a bolt of lightning today. I said, wait a minute, I had completely forgotten Nathan Peterman. Inexplicably, Pete hit it exactly in the same circumstances. They had a quarterback named Warley, yeah. and for no apparent yeah. reason, Butch Jones decided to make the change going into the swamp. And Peterman did have just an absolutely disastrous game. So the the, the the hands of Butch Jones has been on this young man. He had no hope for any <laughs> possibility of success. Yeah. <laughs> he really Ooh. did. He, he really did. I mean, wow. But, Pete, am I correct that as we sit here today uh, doing the Red Zone Sports Report, Sean McDermott has not made an announcement on who the team's starting quarterback will be this weekend, correct? He, he has not made a decision on who's starting. Now, we, we have to just imagine that better judgment is going to finally prevail here and that Tyrod Taylor is going to get the rightful start. Yeah, I'm sure he's just playing the funnies a bit with his protege, uh, his mentor, Andy Reid, who coaches the uh, Kansas City Chiefs. He's from the, the Andy Reid coaching tree, and uh, I'm sure that's part of it. They're basically forcing – Kansas City's hand to have to prepare for two quarterbacks, which I don't really know what type of uh, defensive game plan you'd have to prepare for Peterman at this point, but uh, yeah, just two more thoughts on, on this deal here, and then we'll, we'll, we'll allow the ship to sell. First of all, the offensive line was just atrocious in this football game. We know that Joey Bosa, Melvin Ingram are probably the best pair of pass rushers in the NFL this year, without question actually, and our tackles are just turnstiles. You have to wonder if it was a bit of a mutiny, if you will, on the field, showing the coach that we don't agree with this decision and we're going to let this kid crash and burn. It's speculation. There's been a few different things, you know, thrown around in in social media today that that may be the case. Who knows? But I'll tell you, it was a a terrible performance by our offensive line, especially our tackles. And then again, as I said last week, Tyrod Taylor, Nathan Peterman, they can't play defense. Our defense, it was a top five rush defense in the NFL for six weeks, can now stop neither the run nor the pass, and we are absolutely tumbling down the hill, arguably the worst defense in football. I don't know where this team is going, but we are uh, we are a sinking ship, 
going into Arrowhead, and then, of course, we have the King of the Hill coming in next week with Tom Brady and company. It's just going to get ugly here from this point forward, I think, folks. So, hopefully, this will be the last time we spend this much time on the Buffalo Bills, unless, of course, <laughs> there's a miracle and we win in Arrowhead next week. Hey, Pete, we always talk about what's newsworthy in the NFL. And this week, what's newsworthy in the NFL is Nathan Peterman. Who knows? It might be next weekend. Maybe we're talking about how Nathan Peterman magically came and, and had we, we saw a new Nathan Peterman, and he did well. Pete, let me ask you this. Is Joe Webb still a quarterback on the Bills roster? <laughs> he is still a quarterback on the Bills roster, interestingly enough. And you would think he'd be getting some red at this point, but but he has not. <laughs> and, and you know who knows who knows who's going to be next under center here. And again, it's just a mess, folks. And I just if you're just looking for a little you know comic relief this week, tune into that football game in Arrowhead. It could get real real silly quick in that ball game. Well, it's, it's one more thing, and it will we'll move on. And I don't I don't mean to poke a whole lot of fun, but if you're the defensive <laughs> coordinator at the Kansas City Chiefs. How how do you prepare for Nathan Peterman? I mean, how do you prepare? Do you make sure that all of your – do you do the tip drill? Do you make sure everybody on defense gets to play a little bit on offense? I mean, how would one prepare for Nathan Peterman? What do you do? Well, well make sure you have good. a – make sure you have a different color jersey. That's right. Yeah. That's right. All right, moving on, moving on. Just look, week to week in the NFL, as bad as it seems, the Bills are five and five. It could be a lot worse. Could be, could be a whole lot worse. So we'll see what happens this week. <laughs> Steve Butler, the Savage Burn. There was a big Monday Night Football game last night up in the Pacific Northwest. The Seattle Seahawks. Uh, and our Atlanta Falcons. Atlanta ended up coming away with the win. I tell you, didn't make it easy, Steve. It was a uh, uh, a couple yards, maybe a yard and a half short of uh, going to overtime with Blair Walsh uh, uh, missing a 52-yard field goal coming up short. Um, tell you, the Falcons, you could tell they were really hurt by missing Devonta Freeman. But, uh, boy, was I impressed with Russell Wilson and how uh, it's amazing that he can will his team to victory. But uh, uh, Seattle uh, missing a few pieces on defense as well, but a big, big win for the Atlanta Falcons on the road. Monday night football all the way across the country, snapping a 12- or 13-game winning streak, I think, from the Seattle Seahawks. Give us your assessment of last night's Monday night performance for the Atlanta Falcons. First of all, I thought it was probably one of the top three games all season um, and one of the best Monday night games. Great game. Couldn't agree more. I mean, and by the way, Russell Wilson should be the MVP of the league right now. That dude is balling. Agreed. And he has the worst offensive line in football. And by the way, Pete's heard me talk about this offensive line for three years. So, of y'all, they're horrid. And this guy really is an athlete. And he is throwing darts. I mean, they're bullets and they're on target. And he's on the run hitting moving targets. Uh, the one part that does catch him is his height. That interception was purely on his height. You could see from the camera yeah. angle, he couldn't even see that DB underneath Lockett. He didn't even know he was there. Yeah. And that's why you draft six foot five quarterbacks. But at the end of the day, I'll take Russell Wilson over anybody. But speaking of tall quarterbacks, Matty Ice, pro football focus. <laughs> According to them, over the last four weeks, he has been the absolute best quarterback in football. Eight touchdowns, two picks, 
73% throwing percentage. The guy's starting to get hot, and Sark looks like he's growing a little bit. I mean, I've been really critical of him. And, and some of the play calling, like three weeks ago, third and two, screen behind the line of scrimmage, I, that stuff will drive you wild. But uh, overall, he's been calling a much better game. He's been mixing some intermediate routes. I thought we were taking too many deep shots during the season and, and not going underneath them enough. Um, it, it was a very good game plan. And more importantly, did you see how Matt Ryan was delivering the football? I mean, it's amazing yeah. to me that Tom Brady, Matt Ryan, and Drew Brees, all three of them, the, the way they've been playing. And, and Matt, he had a tough start to the season, but he's back on track now. It, it, it's, it's been unbelievable because all three of them are probably throwing the ball as hard as they've ever thrown it. And it's no coincidence yeah. that all three of them share the same training coach out in, in L.A. that they go spend a month with during the summer. But long story short, an incredibly entertaining game. Falcons defense played fast. They played extremely undisciplined. Um, I think they got to reel that in to beat a team like Philadelphia. But I think I kind of see the Falcons with the Saints. They don't really scare me. The Eagles do scare me. And with two games left against New Orleans, we can still win the division. Yeah, and I tell you, man, it. Uh, I think they did play undisciplined, but you know, when you're playing against a Russell Wilson, um, and man, I mean, I've seen Russell Wilson play a lot of football. We all have, but you know, with what he has to do this year for that team, you know, that was a different type of game than I feel like I've ever seen from him. And you know, there were a lot of times where you know uh, the. the the defenders had him exactly where they wanted him, and you know what? And I, I think it was John Gruden on Monday Night Football said, you know, the Falcons have to prepare for two different plays. The one that's called in from the sidelines, and then the improvised play that Russell Wilson ends up doing when the first play ends up breaking down. And that's just uh, that's hard to do, but I agree with you. Tremendous, tremendous game. And kept some storylines in this game, too, in that – you know, Dan Quinn came, obviously came defensive coordinator from Seattle, but Steve Sarkeesian was um, was an assistant coach with Pete Carroll at USC too. So I thought it was Sark's best, uh, the the best game that he's called as coordinator. So Kip, your thoughts on last night's Monday Night Football game? Yeah, you had to love uh, in the first half how many times the Falcons converted on third down. Um, that was that was amazing to me. That just I, I think they were six out of seven uh, their first seven opportunities, and really got it rolling. The defense had the couple of big plays, the Trufant interception that set up the second touchdown, and of course uh, all of a sudden, Mr. Claiborne is just uh, I mean, good grief! You talk about a good two weeks. Not only did he have six sacks the week before against the Cowboys internationally televised a prime you know prime afternoon game then he comes out on monday night and gets a scoop and score to kind of put the uh, exclamation point on his last couple of weeks so uh, from all components in the game uh, the falcons for three and a half quarters uh, just did everything necessary to put themselves in position i guess the one place you could fault them uh, was they let seattle score in lightning quick there at the end of the game to make it tight um, there was a, it was a free play. Uh, Baldwin was just wide open behind the defense. When you when you have when you have a uh, 11 point lead, uh, the one thing you you cannot do is get beat deep like that. And uh, he was he had four or five yard separation, and uh, they throw about a 50 yard touchdown pass and make it dicey because you know as it, it's how many football games do we watch, fellows, where if a team can get a first down or two, they can put the game away. And I don't care who they are. 
you never see an offense make the right plays because they're being conservative. They don't want to take any chances. It's inevitable they're going to punt and give the ball up. And as soon as you put the ball back in Russell Wilson's hands, I, I, I don't know, you, you, you have to be the most optimistic person in the world to say they're, they're definitely going to come down here and get a field goal. I just I already had the whole de- defeatist attitude after all the great things the Falcons did. They were trying to give it away at the end. And lo and behold, they made just enough plays, and the, the Seahawks had just just not enough time uh, to get any closer than a 52-yarder. And uh, Georgia graduate Blair Walsh uh, could not come through. He he kicked it right down the middle, a 52-yarder, but he only kicked it 51 yards. So Falcons win, great road win, fantastic back-to-back sequence. It looked uh, pretty pretty dim going into a two-week stretch where you hosted the Cowboys. Yeah and then had to go to Seattle. And for the Falcons to go 2-0 in those games and put themselves right back in the conversation uh, is awesome. I agree with Steve. I think the, uh, the, hit, the two head-to-head games at New Orleans, uh, I, I, I like the Falcons' chances, especially at home. Uh, they're right back in the thick of things. They're in the playoffs if they started tomorrow, and uh, they, just need, they just need to keep going, and, and the defense needs to tighten up a little. One last quick point. Uh, talking about Russell Wilson. The Falcons were spying him, and a lot of times it was Beasley's responsibility. I, I can think of two plays where Russell Wilson juked B, and this kid is a tremendous player out of Clemson. Uh, it was just just a fantastic talent, but Russell Wilson just just relieved him of his shoes like two different times in that game. Made a little juke to the outside, cut back inside, and Beasley got air both those times, and he really made him look bad. And that's a quality player. Russell Wilson is just an, an amazing football player. No question about it. I was so impressed when I watched it last night. Um, for the third straight year, the Falcons are six and four. Don't really feel like it. Doesn't feel like a six and four team, but uh, uh, but we're in the same spot we were last year when we went to the Super Bowl. Pete Tasker, your thoughts on the Atlanta Falcons and the Seattle Seahawks Monday Night Football game? Well, I was impressed with the uh, the Falcons in this football game for about three and a half quarters, uh, actually about yeah. three and three quarters quarters. But uh, I got nervous just like the rest of Falcons Nation did, yeah. uh, and, and got concerned they weren't going to finish the, the football game. Um, you know, yeah. gave up a, a well, they've never done that before, the have they, Pete? Yeah, well, yeah. yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's it's called it's called <laughs> a syndrome, Chip. I mean, it's just something yeah. that you, you come to expect over time, especially when you've been stung as, as many times now over the years as Falcons fans have, especially recently. We, we know all about it. Um, but I'm very impressed with the overall performance. I mean, great, just to speak to Russell Wilson, absolutely agree. Just a, just a phenomenal football player, uh, just always under control. And, and, and it's his size, uh, his ability, you know, running the football. He's just so smooth with it. He's just so savvy, uh, and, and he's become an excellent passer. He's carrying that football team. It, it, the defense is a shell of itself between the injuries and some of the age and the attrition that's going on there. Uh, you know, very really impressed with, with the Falcons overall, with, with the exception, of course, again, the finish of that football game. And I'm excited to see what they're going to bring to the table as we head down the stretch run. Now, this is a team, as we all know, that uh, was, was just basically inches away from a Super Bowl championship. And quite frankly, should have won the football game. We all know that, and we all wish it would have happened. Um, I would love to see this team make a run, but it's going to be a dogfight in the NFC South because you're not only contending with the New Orleans Saints, as, as we've already mentioned here, but of course the Carolina Panthers are making their move right now. They're well-rested. Their bye couldn't have come at a better time. 
look out for the Panthers, too, in that division and in the NFC in general. It's going to be a dogfight. It sure is, guys. Uh, Stick with us. We're going to take a 60-second break. On the other end of the 60-second break, we are going to go through winners and losers for the week in sports. So stick with us, folks. We'll be right back with winners and losers, and we'll wrap it up and catch you next week. Time has flown by, as it always does, especially this type of year, this time of year. And uh, we have reached uh, the winners and losers segment in the week in sports. And we are going to get started with our college football guru, Mr. Kip Kiefer. Kip, go ahead, give us your winners and losers for the week in sports. Lot to choose from this week, Kip. Yeah, there's a, there's no limit. I, my winner this week is the Mercer Bears. And you might say to yourself, how could the Mercer Bears be Kip Kiefer's winner of the week? They lost 56 to nothing in Tuscaloosa. Well, I'm going to give the Mercer Bears the, uh, that de- designation because earlier in the year they visited Jordan-Hare and played Auburn. <laughs> Last weekend, amazingly, the Mercer Bears, an FCS team, were welcomed in Tuscaloosa to play Alabama. Now, uh, there's not many teams uh, from the SCS that, uh, that would have the opportunity to play uh, the Iron Bowl participants and almost a sure college football playoff opponent to play both of them in the same year. Unbelievable. And the fact that the Mercer Bears uh, took home between the two games $955,000 for their kind appearances here in the state of Alabama I have to give the athletic director, anybody associated with Mercer, uh, plucking about a million dollars in revenue from the good state of Alabama, taking it back to Macon, Georgia. Kudos to the Mercer Bears. Uh, My loser of the week, uh, and it's really a tough loser to to designate, but because this guy had a great game. I don't know if you guys got to see the Saints and the Redskins game at the Superdome. It was in the early corridor on Sunday. The Redskins played as well as they've played all year. Kirk Cousins was great. He, he led his team heroically. At the end, the Redskins made a few mistakes. Drew Brees, as Drew Brees is prone to do, brought the Saints back amazingly in, in the final minute, tied the, well, got to within the two-point conversion of tying the game, and they converted. So the Redskins, who had a 16-point lead with just five minutes left, uh, gave up the lead, and it was 38-38. to 38. But Cousins then heroically, in three plays, all passes to Jemison Crowder, took the Redskins all the way down in the last 25 seconds to the Saints' 33-yard line. They still had one timeout. But what does Kirk Cousins do? 
he gets pressure on the uh, on on the next play and throws it away to the outside. Intentional grounding is the call. Oh yes. Um, and and the very next play, Cousins in one final heave doesn't even get it off. He is sacked. It was probably the most bonehead yeah. thing I've seen a football team do and a quarterback do to get an intentional grounding penalty when you're in field goal range and Rose, their kicker, made a 55-yarder last week. He's kicking in the dome, a 50-yarder as well within his range. All they had to do is run the ball up the middle and call timeout. They try for the one pass play to get it closer, and you can't take a sack there, I understand, but you cannot stand in the pocket and throw it uh, to the sidelines and get a grounding call. I'm sorry, loser of the week, Kirk Cousins, worst decision I've seen all year. Yeah, you got to get out of the pocket and get it away. You, I couldn't agree with you more. I saw that, and uh, uh, a very appropriate loser for the week. And Kurt Cousins, uh, the Savage Burn, Mr. Steve Butler, your winners and losers for the week in sports. Well, I'm going to start with my winner of the week, and, and for me, this was a pretty easy one. I'm going to go with Coach Brian Bohannon of Kennesaw State University. There you go. The third season of the football program. He's led us to a Big South championship and, and a, a very good seating with a home game for a national uh, title run in FCS Division One, And he also won Big South Coach of the Year today. So it's been a banner day for the Bohannon or banner week for the Bohannon household and want to congratulate them. And obviously we'll be looking forward to seeing what we can't do in the playoffs. And my loser of the week, it's going to sound obvious at first. And I, and I kind of got off this Baker Mayfield thing after I thought about it. It was really the coaches. But at the end of the day, I'm going to make Pete Carroll my loser of the week. And it's not for what you saw last year. It's for the fact that the Seahawks led the NFL in penalties last year. They lead the NFL in penalties this year. They've become the Oakland Raiders in that regard of lack of discipline. And, man, are they really losing football games because of coaching. And it's not just the bonehead, you know, attempted uh, fake field goal type stuff. It's every down plays where they're showing lack of discipline, both on defense and offense. He has lost control of that football team. And I saw it last year when we got underneath their skin in the playoffs at the, at the Georgia Dome. And we saw a lot of that last night. I mean, there were some massive mistakes by that football team. So, Pete Carroll, I think he's lost this organization. He's my loser of the week. Interesting, Steve. Yeah. I, uh, I, um, uh, I, I couldn't believe that fake field goal. Um, I guess I, I mean, I could see doing a fake field goal, but um, with six seconds left, I mean, what if you get a first down? You're in a position to kick another yeah. field goal. I guess he thought the guy could take it to the house, so it's hard to argue with that. Real and what hard I really to argue hold with that. The Buffalo Bad Boy, Pete Tasca, your winners and losers for the week in sports. My winner of the week, Chip, uh, we're going to go to the NFC North, the Minnesota Vikings, Case Keenum, is going to get my winner of the week. This kid has been so impressive. And, and let's give a, a tip of the hat to head coach Mike Zimmer as well. He resisted the temptation that head coach Sean McDermott certainly capitulated to in Buffalo here. He, he, he publicly came out and, and expressed his, his uh, you know, struggle with whether or not he should start Teddy Bridgewater, who's finally healthy. He stuck with Case Keenum in the clash with the L.A. Rams this week, and it was just a, a, a great football game from the uh, Minnesota Vikings. Case Keenum. No one, no one saw this coming from this kid, honestly. He's just been playing great football. He's kept this team afloat, not only kept them afloat, 
They're on top of the NFC with the exception of the Philadelphia Eagles. They're having a great season. I don't think he's going to let go of this job this year. He's going to ride the team in the playoffs, and who knows. So I'm going to give my winner of the week to Case Keenum. Loser of the week, who else could it be? I'm going to spare the offensive side of the ball, however. And I'm going to give my loser of the week, loser of the week to the better defense, defensive coordinator Wesley Frazier in this historic run of ineptitude that we've been on, on the defensive side of the ball. We all know the quarterback situation gets all the spotlight, all the pub, but it's the defense that really, truly is the story of what's going on here in Buffalo. We mentioned it earlier. This team has given up 135 points in the last three games, 34 to the Jets, 47 to the Saints, and 54 to the Chargers. My goodness, how could it be anybody but the Buffalo Bills defense and defensive coordinator Leslie Frazier thing is really crumbling quick, folks. It really is. <laughs> but you still got time to turn it around, Pete. You still got time to turn it around. <laughs> but you don't. You're not going to get to 11 wins, but you might turn around the defense. You know. So at least I'll at least give you. I'm not. I'm not going to jinx you on that side. My winners and losers for the week in sports. I'm actually going to crawl out of my fall comfort zone a little bit and. Uh, my winners and losers for the week in sports have nothing to do with football. My winner for the week is NASCAR driver Martin Truex Jr. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Martin Truex Jr. this past weekend at Homestead Miami Speedway, one of four drivers eligible for the NASCAR title um, going up against uh, Kevin Harvick. Kyle Busch and Brad Keselowski, Martin Truex Jr., who dominated all year, um, dominated in Miami and won a close race against Kyle Busch. Um, What makes that great, not only is Martin Truex a very likable guy around the garage, but this is one for the little guys. This is the first time in 32 years that a NASCAR team won the title that was not based in the state of North Carolina. Furniture Row Racing is the only team in NASCAR that is west of the Mississippi River. They are based in Denver, Colorado. A small team owned by Barney Visser. They only field two cars. Um, The big boys in NASCAR, the Roush Fenways, the Richard Childress Racing, the Hendrick Motorsports, and the Stuart Haases all have four cars. Only this past year did Furniture Row get the money to expand to two cars. And Martin Truex Jr. is your NASCAR champion, so he is my winner of the week. My loser of the week is a gentleman that today... um, joined a list that has long been headlined by Pete Rose, and that is former Atlanta Braves general manager John Coppolella uh, was added today to the Pete Rose list of men banned from baseball for lifetime. What makes this unique is Coppolella is 38 years old. He resigned from the Atlanta Braves general manager position in October of this year, October 7th. Major League Baseball announced today that Coppolella, John Coppolella, will never work in baseball again. Those on the permanently ineligible list are prohibited from working in any capacity in the majors or with affiliated minor league teams and also cannot serve as agents. Coppolella is the third person banned for life during Rob Manfred's tenure. Um, the Mets reliever, Jenry uh, Mejia, was declared ineligible in 2016 for multiple violations of the baseball drug program. And then former 
St. Louis Cardinals scouting director Chris Coria was banned in January for his role in hacking the Astros computer system. Uh, all of this because of uh, uh, infractions with respect to signing international players. Major League Baseball handing down a strong, strong penalty today, not only against Copalella, but against the Braves. Ten international minor league players, their contracts were all voided today, and they become free agents, so they now can get on the free agent market. Uh, Major League Baseball also took away a third-round draft pick from the Atlanta Braves this year, so my loser today is the Atlanta Braves and former uh, general manager John Copalella. Uh, guys, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, great week. I hope everybody has a fantastic Thanksgiving. Make sure you listen to us next week. We are going to, uh, not only are we going to uh, recap uh, what we hope is a very good Auburn Alabama game, we are also going to talk next week about, of all things, the Buffalo Bills-Kansas City Chiefs game because we will know at that point in time who plays quarterback for the Buffalo Bills. So, Kip, Steve, Pete, thanks for joining us. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Have a fantastic Thanksgiving with your family. We'll catch you next week, same place, same time. Red Zone Sports Report.